Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz trumpeter, producer, and educator Jeremy Pell. On the heels of releasing his latest 2016 album, Jive Culture, he is going stronger than ever. And on this new album, he collaborated with the legendary Ron Carter, and it's been getting great reviews. Whether being part of a big band like those of Roy Hargrove, the Village Vanguard Orchestra, the Duke Ellington Big Band, the Cannonball Adderley Legacy Band featuring Louis Hayes, or on his own, he is a very talented, hardworking cat with a lot of thoughts on his career and the world of jazz. Get to know Jeremy and dig this interview, my friends. I'm going to go ahead and dive right in here. First of all, thank you for taking some time. It's an honor to speak with you and have you on the show. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Right on. I'm going to go ahead and dive in here and kind of ask kind of a dual question here. Jive Culture is a great album. I know that's the most recent album on your radar. Give me an idea of not only kind of in your own words what's been going on, but kind of talk to me a little bit about how you feel about this album and the afterglow of releasing it. I think uh, that the release of, or just making of it, was something that I was, it would seem that I've been looking forward to for a lifetime. You have musicians of that magnitude on the, on the date, uh, namely Ron Carter. And so I was very excited for it to be released. I've gotten all positive responses, which uh, is a testament to the music itself. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I feel like there back on discography. Um, I think there are certain records that stand out as, as I guess, uh, standouts, for lack of a better word, at that at that very time. And I think this is one of those kind of goalposts that uh shines brightly i mean and it's it's nowhere near what i will achieve in the future but it's something that will always shine bright it's also you know in the tradition of just great if i do say so myself just great trumpet quartet recordings which uh is something i've always been very much into so I'm going to go back to the beginnings of your life here. You were born in California. Were you raised? Where were you raised? Raised in, in between California and the Bronx. Okay. Talk to me about your childhood and how you acquired this love of not only music, but more, but more specifically jazz. It's like anything else. I mean, it, whatever is around you, uh, you certainly pick up on, and that was music that was played. So what was it about the trumpet? Why was, why was the trumpet your instrument to pick? Well, it was something that just seemed to cost me. I pick up the phone. <laughs> you know, it was, it was there, and uh, it just seemed like something that I would be into. I mean, it was a very long time ago, so I can't recall the exact thought that was going on in my head, but it was something that always stuck out. What's so intriguing about the instrument as the years go on for you? What What do you love about playing the trumpet? that there's uh, always something new to learn and, 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 a, and, a, and a new way to transcend the instrument. So when you were a kid, or when you were growing up and you were really getting into jazz, was there a specific album that kind of blew your doors down? Not at first. I mean, you know, anything that I've listened to with Miles was always something that uh, that really, you know, piqued my curiosity. So, I mean, if you say anything with Miles, it would be a... a, a a sore bet. 
So from a young age, did you know you always wanted to get into music, or did you have other aspirations for a career in your life? No, music was pretty much it. What did you learn in your years at Berkeley in a formal setting? Obviously, the classroom tended to be more of the world and the world stage when you're out there, but in a formal environment like Berkeley, what did you get out of it? Well, it's important to know I went to Berkeley for film scoring, so I mean, that was what kept me in the school. I mean, that said, I mean, I did, you, you still had to take uh, ensembles and, you know, satisfy that part of the curriculum. And I did have a few uh, ensemble teachers, most notably uh, Ron Mahdi and Billy Pierce, imparted the lessons that they'd learned uh, playing with, you know, the masters like Freddie Hubbard and Tony Williams and whatnot. So, I mean, that was an invaluable part of um, what there was to learn. So in the beginning when you started performing, were you nervous? Did or, or has performing always been a very comfortable thing for you? It's always been rather comfortable. There was no, uh, I, I I don't remember a time when I would have been nervous. I mean, you'd have to ask my mother or something like that. I mean, I don't, there could have there could have been, but to my knowledge, and this is not trying to, to hide anything, I just don't remember a time where I was, completely, you know, stage, just had stage fright or anything like that. I was never nervous. So early on in your career, you were in the Mingus Big Band, and that kind of, you know, uh, cut your teeth, so to speak. How big was that experience for you early on? I'd say it was huge. I mean, that was an experience to where that was the first experience. I mean, considering I moved to New York in 98, that was the first professional experience I had with people that I admired, that, that I'd heard on record, and uh, also people that I didn't really know that well but came to realize their stature in the scene. You know, sometimes you don't necessarily meet the people that are... Well, you do meet the people, but I mean, what I mean to say is that sometimes it's not always just about... The, the luminaries in the band, but there are also people that are great big band players and session players that have made a career of that, and that's something to be admired, too. I mean, that was, that was certainly the case with the Mingus Band, and, and I'm eternally grateful for that, especially because it led to other associations. You know, And the same thing with, with the Village Vanguard Orchestra. So I want to kind of take a sidestep here on the luminaries. You just performed with Ron Carter on your album. You know, you perform with Cedar Walton, Frank West, Frank Foster. The list goes on. What do you learn continually as a musician as you evolve over your life? What do you learn from being around forces like that? I mean, you're a force. You're a big shot in jazz. But these people have kind of, they're in a legendary status. What do you get from them? There's a number of things. I mean, first is the validation that you are, are on the right path, you know, to, to one day being where they are. And I think that's, that's a very important aspect because, I mean, really they're all set and old enough and, and, and secure enough in there with what they've done over the past 50, 60 years that, you know, they don't have to play with me. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So you know, it, so the, the the fact that they call me or they choose to pick up the phone or, you know, talk to me is 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 a validation that I'm I'm 
doing something right. You know, also, I've never been the type of person, unless I was really curious about knowing something in particular, I've never been the type of person to necessarily ask questions outright. And and I say that to mean that what happens is over the course of time, let's say I've been playing with Jimmy Heath for, you know, almost 20 years, over that course of time, whatever he might have said 20 years ago or might have done 20 years ago kind of resonates with me now. You see what I mean? So, I mean, you know, sometimes you're not ready from a maturity aspect to, to absorb what you see or what you hear at that point because you're still just trying to figure yourself out. And then once you get older, you start to think back and things let me ask you this, and, and and this is really getting in your discography. You're obviously very prolific and talented as a leader, but you are also in a lot of big bands, the Roy Hargrove Big Band, uh, the Village Vanguard Orchestra. You like to get involved with big outfits. What's that like? How does that satiate your uh, approach, your overall approach to playing? It, it affects it directly because you learn the fundamentals in the big band, you know, and you take those fundamentals, things that are very, you know, seem like they they should be easily known, you know, like blending and listening to the other person and this and that. So you take those experiences and you apply them to a small group setting. And so that's really the big thing, the big takeaway when you, when you do big bands. And then when you, you know, return to a, have if you've had a career starting out in big bands, then it makes it easier to cross over into small groups. And then when you go back into big bands, you're that much more prepared for a lot of different things. Let me ask you this. You've been taught by great teachers over the years. Mm-hmm. Not, and, and this question isn't about your favorite teacher. This question is more from just kind of a human, the way your brain works. Whose advice kind of re- circulates through your mind on a regular basis that kind of has stuck with you the most? Well, you know, I remember one time I was eager. We, I was out with uh, Cedar Walton in California. And this was it had to have been around 2004. The reason why I remember the years is because that's when, when they were just getting the, you know, the Dizzy's and jazz, the new jazz at Lincoln Center happening. So Dizzy's hadn't quite uh, made its grand opening yet, but I was in Lewis Hayes' band, and they were using kind of using that band on a lot of different occasions as a test band for the room for for different for their sponsors, namely Coca Cola and and uh, a lot of other people, just to get a feel for the room. And so we were always playing there for a time. I was doing something with Cedar on the West Coast. I needed to get back. To New York to make this gig, you know, and you know, Cedar, in a way, you know, because he, he sensed that I was very eager to do this because I was trying to do everything, and he said, "Man, well, look, you can't make every gig," <laughs> and that's something that I think about, you know, number one because you know, with his kind of delivery, which he known to know, but also because. There's there's a certain aspect of uh, there's a big aspect not even certain there's a big aspect of somebody that's you know been my age before and you know really imparting some advice like you know 
you need to slow down sometimes. And and so, you know, I got that. And, and that sticks in my mind. Let me ask you this. Based on all the education you've received over your life, you're a educator and a teacher. What's your philosophy? Based around you get what you put into it. You see, you see what I'm saying? I, yeah. You know, I, I teach a lot of students varying levels. And one of the things that I get personally uh, excited is if I find a student that is really is diligent and you can hear their practice, you know, from week to week or whenever I see them. You know, it's always inspiring to see people get better. The other thing is that, and, that, and that's a rarity for me. Yeah. Because the other the other side of it that students that are are full of excuses on why things, you know, didn't happen and they're not applying themselves. And so that's where that, that philosophy really takes uh takes shape. People say, Okay, well you could be a you know, we think about the legendary musicians and and people practicing for eight hours a day and whatnot and you know, that's a, a part of what we do behind closed doors. So when you see that CD and you're holding it in your hands and you listen to the music, uh, it's easy to forget that. And we want you to forget that because it's not your business to know how many hours that we practice to get there. It's only your business to realize if this is you like the music or not. But the reality is that it took a lot of practice to get there and, and it still takes a lot of practice to maintain whatever instrument or whatever your musicality is. And so, therefore, you have to constantly be putting the, the due diligence in there. And you're rewarded when your ideas flourish. But yeah. the other thing is that if you're practicing and, and you're coming up with the constant excuses, then that's what your playing is going to sound like. Let me ask you this. Your the list of folks in the jazz world you played with would be what the world would consider the collective heroes of jazz. But I want to know who are your heroes? I mean, I've got my mother, she's a clear of hustling. And I learned that from her from a, from seeing her doing it. But you know, her one of the the most important things that she always told me was always be your own boss. So I took that to heart, and I remember her telling me that, and it always sticks with me. And then certainly when you see musicians that are making a way for themselves, like for me coming up, I was playing with great musicians that had a notoriety, some people like Ralph Peterson and Lonnie Plaxico. And I singled them out because when I moved to New York, they were in a middle point in their career. They had done quite a lot. You know, and they had already been in New York for over 10 years, maybe about 15 years by the time I got to New York. They wanted me to play in that band, and so I did. And I saw the type of work that it took for them to, to keep their dream alive, you know. And so that was something that uh, resonated with me because when I, when I think about it and I look back to, you know, how far I've come and, and what has, has happened in my career thus far, a lot of it is is what you would call self-made. And I say that meaning that I didn't have the kind of machine that uh, Roy Hargrove and, and Nicholas Payton and, you know, those kind of cats. And, and obviously back to 
Winton and, and, and those kind of cats had behind them when they were coming up. Uh, and that's not to say that they didn't deserve it. I'm just saying that there was an obvious machine that was behind them that promoted them and that tour support and, and, and so on and so forth, which is the same type of thing that, you know, younger cats like Ambrose, Akamuzuri, and, and Christian Scott are having now. So they're enjoying that machine, whereas I'm not going to say that I didn't have, it, you know, breaks along the way. I'm certainly, you know, I've had my covers on the beat and I've had my, my articles written in the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, so I did prosper from it, but it wasn't the same kind of machine that allowed me to effortlessly, you know, advance in my career. You know what I mean? So everything yes. was a was a, a process. I earned it. <laughs> you know, absolutely. And and, and, and and you know, I, I'm very. Uh, you know, I shouldn't. I, I'll, I'll say this because I don't want to make it seem like they didn't. You know what I mean? That's that's not where I'm coming from at all. They certainly did practice and they're putting time in the craft, and so that deserves mention. And they and they certainly deserve, you know, the ink that they're getting. But what I'm saying is that uh, that aside. Everything that I've gotten at this point in terms of gigs and hooking up tours and, and so on and so forth has has been something that I've actually gone out myself to get. Absolutely. No, I dig it. Let me ask you this. Speaking of all the gigs and the years that you've, you've uh, performed, what's one of the greatest compliments you've ever gotten from a fan? Man, i got to think about that. I've gotten some good ones. Or I guess let me phrase it like this. What do you like uh -huh. to hear? When someone experiences you, they experience jazz, and they feel it. What 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 do you dig hearing from the fans? Just that they enjoy themselves. You know, sometimes I've got people. I've I've had people that come up to me and say, "Man, this is my first jazz concert, and I absolutely love it." I think I remember actually being in Chicago, maybe last year or something like that. And a lady, a young lady, came up to me, and she was there with her husband. And I guess her husband had taken her out to, to see some jazz, and this was her first show. And she immediately, you know, got my CDs and whatnot, and she was gushing at how how much she loved the music, and this is her first concert. And, you know, that, that, that does resonate with me. I mean, she was probably about, she was around my age. You know, she was in her, her 30s. It was evident to me that, you know, this was not like something that was in her household and that she grew up listening to all the time. You know, for her to come out, it seems would have been a big deal. You know, when you're that age and when you, you, you start to kind of explore different options, you already kind of have a chip on your shoulder. I don't, I have, I don't, I don't meet many, you know, 30, you know, going on in the 40s and I'll be 40 this year. I don't meet many people around my age that are completely open-minded. You know what I mean? I had a conversation with somebody the other day that's just, you know, was closed to jazz. A lot of that has to do with first, and I and I can't be mad at them because a lot of that has to, to do with their first impressions of what they might have heard. And sometimes if you hear something and, and it doesn't sound good or it sounds abrasive, you, you pretty much, that, that has muddied your whole concept of what the music is. Yeah, and so I don't now. That I'm just you know at this point speculating. I can't. I'm yeah. I, I can't speak to what her experience was with the music, uh, if she had any at all. But what I'm saying, I guess, in a very roundabout way, is that 
you know, whatever her experience might have been or lack of experience might have been, it brought her to that evening to come see me. And the fact that she was enthralled with the music is, uh, is a good feeling. Let me ask you a general question here. For someone that's dedicated their life to the jazz craft, why do you love jazz? It's, it's the feel of it and, and where it takes you. You know, I'm, I feel very fortunate to have gotten into the music in a time where it was much simpler. And I know I sound like I'm, you know, 90 years old <laughs> saying that. But do you think what I what I mean by simpler is that, you know, there was no social media. There was no iPhones. There was no iPods. There was none of that, you know. So you basically had records. And you put them on, and there was no pressing of a button to fast forward them. You just basically listened to the whole track, and then put the needle back to where you know you want to listen to. And then after that, you had tapes, where at that point you had to rewind, and then it, and it, you know, so everything was very uh, it was a process that sometimes you didn't want to have to deal with. So you you basically resigned yourself to listening to the full album because you had the time and the patience to do that. Yeah. And that's the, that's, that's the big difference between when I was coming up versus, you know, people that are coming up right now that have so many distractions. So when I say it's the feel and where, and where it takes me, I could really relate to that because I've had my time to, to, to really absorb all that I've heard and I know how to absorb it which is a lot different than how people are taking in information right now. Well, I remember being in English class, and there was a, a special lesson in English where they were trying to teach you know, us about speed reading, which I thought was odd back then. You yeah. know, but you know, they wanted to go ahead and teach a course in that. You know, so even back then, everything was set up for you to, to receive information a lot faster. But sometimes it doesn't need to be like that. No, absolutely. Well, it's just like you were saying. Sometimes you just got to slow down, for sure. Mm. Uh, so let me ask you this. You've left an enormous mark on jazz so far. You still have a long way to go. So let me ask you this. When folks peel back the pages of jazz history and they come across your name, what do you want them to think about? What do you want to, how do you want to leave your mark on the world of jazz? At this point, I don't really shoot for innovation or anything that 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 sells things you know what i mean because that's to me what is a lot of times you'll find people that are uh catering to that or pandering to that to that effect to 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 really be in line with people that are you know innovative or you know quote unquote innovative by other people's standards and those other people normally are not musicians or creative types. So it was always it's always laughable when you hear somebody saying that such and such is a genius or whatnot based off of whatever criteria that they may or may not have. I think with me I just wanna have a solid discography of things that you can go back and listen to. I mean when you when you when I think about I don't know, Art Farmer or, or Donald Byrd, you know, these were big names that Stand the test of time in the annals of what we could all refer to on any kind of on any kind of list. So 
say, oh, yeah, Art Farmer recorded that in 50-something, or Donald Byrd recorded that. Now, at the time that they were coming up, you know, Donald Byrd was a star right, in the in the mid-50s, and that was, that was a void. He came in that void after, after Clifford Brown died. But then, you know, he quickly uh, kind of overshadowed by, you know, the arrival of Lee Morgan, who was a few years younger, you know, and then Freddie Hubbard after that, you know, so I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that he probably didn't make it to the, uh, the star, you know, annals of like, your, you know, your Miles Davis superstar type of thing. And that's okay because he did so much, you know, stuff, you know, and his, his career was so widespread, you know, from his beginnings, with you know, with people like George Wallington and, and John Coltrane and, and a lot of and Art Blakey and then all the way up through the Blackbirds, you know what I mean? So he did a lot of things. You know, he left us two years ago. You know, he could have looked back and said, Well, I did this and and, and that's kind of the freedom the model that I like. You know what I mean? So I'm not necessarily you know I mean, who who's gonna sit here and say, I don't wanna be a superstar? <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I'm not going to say that. If somebody says, hey, listen, man, I have this idea. We're going to take your records and we're going to splash your, your your record covers on every billboard in the city and you're going to be, I'm going to re- replace, you know, P. Diddy's picture in Times Square with yours and you're going to become a big star. Shit, yeah, I'll take it. I've been yeah. out here for almost 20 years. Why not? <laughs> you know, yeah. but that said, um, that's not something that I'm, I'm shooting for. So what I want to be remembered for is somebody that that has had a, a good career and a consistent career of of turning out good music. That's perfect, man. Jeremy, hey, thank you for giving me your story and giving me your time today, man. I love your music, and it was it's been an honor to talk with you. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz and thanks to jeremy for his time his music and his journey if you want to hear more interviews go to famous interviews with joe domino on the itunes store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz until next time enjoy the music my friends Neon Jazz.